This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. So they're moving ahead with a plan, y'all, but we seem to be in some kind of virtual loop here. And we got to get ourselves out of it. And we got to get out out quick. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous the true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. America's chickens! Coming home! You're gonna sing the swim, you're gonna learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're gonna learn the truth. Alternative activists empowerment. Talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Passes a pre-site law and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. You just don't give up, just don't give up. And now, Janice Graham. And good evening to all of my friends, allies, and comrades out there tonight. You are in the sanctuary. It's our common ground. Thank you so much for being with us. We have a huge and dense broadcast tonight, and uh, we hope you'll take your seats for those of you who are out there. And you would like to join us in our live chat room. We're at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG here at Blog Talk Radio in our, this is unbelievable. This is like our um, 19th season on Blog Talk Radio, and we've been doing it that long at Blog Talk Radio. That's what Blog Talk Radio says we have. Uh, We greet you in the name of hope and prosperity, and in this sanctuary, we hope you seek peace, we hope you seek comfort, and any healing that you need from struggling through being in America in 2020. Again, for any of you who are new to us, this is our 35th season of Our Common Ground, and I am very proud of the body of work that uh, you will are able to enjoy and continue to be uplifted because our job is to take the truth 
to transform the truth and make it power for all of us, just one broadcast at a time. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we are having Sister Ruby Nell Sales back with us. If you do not know her, she is the founder and director of the Spirit House Project, for which uh, it is unique in its mission to act, to teach, to preach, and to activate through education. She is my sister in spirit and in my heart. She has a she has built a village in my heart. And she is one of my wisest colleagues. We are of the same generation. We are of the same soil. She's a nationally recognized human rights activist, a public theologian, and social critic whose articles and work appear in many journals, on site, online sites, and books. Uh, in August of 1965, Ruby Sales, along with other SNCC workers, joined young people from Fort Deposit, Alabama, who organized a demonstration to protest the actions of the local white grocery store owners who had cheated their parents. And this group was arrested, and the rest is history, a history that you ought to know. Write it down. A white seminarian and freedom worker from Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was assassinated as he pulled Sister Ruby Sales out of the line of fire when they attempted to enter Cash Grocery Store to buy sodas for other freedom workers. Tom Coleman, also shot and deeply wounded. Father Richard Morris Rowe, a priest from Chicago. Um, as a social activist, Ruby has served on many committees. She's a preached around the country and spoken at national conferences on race, class, gender, and reconciliation, including Ted, a TED speech, which you must, and many interviews, which you must find, and I will tell you more about it during the broadcast. She attended and earned a degree from Tuskegee Institute, Manhattanville College and Princeton University. She received in 1998 a Master's of Divinity from the Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And one of the ironies of all time is that Ruby Sales was in the same place on this planet that I was for a number of years, and we did not know it. She is without doubt, without question, one of this nation's premier and outstanding racial, economic, and social justice workers. And we are so proud that she has been an Our Common Ground voice 
for more than 10 years, more than 10 years, like 11 years. And on the other side of this, because it is for her, uh, we'll be talking with Sister Ruby Nell Sales. Sunday in her meditation from her front porch. Ruby Nail Sales wrote the following. The songs of our ancestors were for us, not relics of the past, but they were the solid ground. They kept us connected to the secrets and rituals that our ancestors hollowed out. In sights of terror where white men intended to either kill them or break their spirit. These songs were the substance of the soul force that moved my generation to go into the lion's den without weapons, but with a soul force so powerful that we came out bloody but unafraid, victorious, and unbowed. Ruby Nails Sales, we are so happy to have you back with us. I know this was your song last Sunday morning. <laughs> Thank you so for much for being with us. Sister Ruby, so glad to have you back. I, I need thought you. for a moment when you were introducing me, I thought, gee whiz, she's describing herself. <laughs> Everything you said about me, I contribute to you. Well, I tell you, when you broke out last Sunday morning talking about the songs of our ancestors and you brought up Old Ship of Zion, we were pushing our fingers through the same soil. How well, are you? I'm great. Just a little tired of being inside the house, but... Other than that, my spirit is fine. Well, we need your spirit tonight because some of us out there are so exhausted. And you know, you know what I think about Ruby? I think about how people, our people, have to survive both in the poverty of spirit and the poverty of economics and the and and problems all around. You know, where where's the next food coming from? What's going on with the unemployment? Is there going to be a job for me in two months? 
97,000 children in the last two weeks in this country tested positive for COVID-19 as they prepared to go back to school. Dr. Fossey has had to hire security people for his family scattered all over the country. Talk to us, Ruby. Talk to us. And yet, in the midst of all of that, black people were able to create a magnificent people with outstanding institutions and a productive and powerful generation who dismantles white supremacy in the South without firing a shot. They did it with the soul force that you heard in those songs. And so that we are the beneficiaries of a theology and a philosophy and an ideology of pragmatic optimism that for our people was a long train running towards excellence, survival, and resilience. And so that and what pragmatic optimism allowed them to do was to look at the horrors of enslavement and Southern apartheid, to look at those vicious systems realistically in the face, but not give in to despair. And so they and so they said, This is what we'll do, this is our strategy. We will kill generations for the day of the Jubilee. And they put their whole soul in the project of educating the youth for the advancement of the race and for the preservation of our rights and liberties. And they did this when there was no evidence that their work would bear fruit, but they kept on healing. And my generation was the penultimate statement of their generational investment not only in us, but also in themselves. And so I would say to my audience, my brothers and sisters tonight, yes, the road is weary, and the wind gales are strong, and there are people in the White House and around and all who surround him who are determined that we will not survive. But I want to say to you, young folk, and I want to say to you, my peers, as my ancestors said to each other, walk together, children. Don't you get weary. Don't There's you a great reckoning weary. in the morning. Amen. We don't give up <laughs> as black people. We don't give up. Because the problem is, you know why, why white people come down so hard on us? Because they are afraid of our soul power because they've done everything possible to destroy us. But not only were they not able to destroy us, but we were the most productive people that they could have imagined. And the poet Sterling Brown captures that in his poem when he says, strong people keep a coming. They hemmed us in ghettos. They shot us. The police shot us. They did everything that they could, he said, to destroy us. But the strong people kept a coming. So we have to remember, even as we deal with the heinous crimes of white supremacy, we must touch and capture that soul force. You know, Ruby, one of the things that you and I share, and many 
of our brothers and sisters in, in this audience tonight share is the teaching and the wisdom of of Southern life in Jim Crow. Yes. There were some skills, there was some learning that uh, we, we, we were privy to. As our people migrated from the South, they took those stories, they took those lessons with them. And one of the things that I'm concerned about, and I know that you have done work at Spirit House Project around this, is how you impart the lessons of resilience, the lessons of clarity. I think that, you know, a, a lot of black people are running around hollering about Donald Trump and his his minions, his criminal minions and his criminal regime and uh, the way in which he's dismantling our democracy and our government. Um and, and and they say that they are confused and and one of our strengths is that even when we say we are confused, when we say it is chaos, we have an embedded ability, a capacity to see clearly. How do yes. we give that to all of the people around us? Um, it begins with a conversation not only about how much we suffer, but to remind young people of the victories, to remind us of the victories that we achieved in this country, of people who were not meant to survive. We scale the heights in this country, and all the white people like to tell us that all black people are poor. The truth of the matter is that in the South, in the arid soil of segregation, we were able to hew out one of the most powerful black middle class that began in 1876. We built 111 historically black colleges. We created funeral homes. We even had black hospitals before we gave them away during integration. We created black schools and we created a counterculture of education that predicated itself on a pedagogy of somebodyness that was a long train running towards excellence. And so that it is by studying the more ways in which we achieve the victories that will be a pathway. But you can't do that when you look at yourself as a defeated people without anything to recommend you. And that you think that only white people achieve glorious victories. And that, and that white people of God, if you believe that white people of God and they will rule forever and that they are omnipotent, then you will give in to despair. But Thoreau, Martin Luther King reminded us that no lie lives forever, that the moral arc of the universe bend towards truth, and truth crushed to the ground shall rise again. Once there was a mighty empire that called itself Great Britain, and it would boast and, and brag that the sun did not set in so vast was its empire that neither the sun nor the moon set on its empire. And now that land is a pale image of itself. No lie lives forever. There's never been an empire that's not, not fallen 
that the people have not brought down empires. But so you have to know history. So one of the ways in which we get through this is to find hope in history, is to look for the stories that reaffirm the power of the people over the power of the empire. And black folk have got to stop referring to our history as back in the day. Because the minute you say that, you diminish the significance of the history. And you could, you situate it, you make it a relic rather than a continuity. History is a continuum. It's not back in the day. Where we are today continues to where we were yesterday. We're the only person who thinks that our history is back in the day. White people value our back-in-the-day history and our production so bad, so much, until they sell a Bessie Smith record at $10,000. <laughs> they sell a James Brown first record at five and $6,000. They sell a James, you can't buy a Langston Hughes, Langston Hughes first edition book. It's so expensive. But yet we so hate ourselves that we dismiss these things as back in the day while the rest of the world feeds off of them today and make a profit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now that we are on your front porch and we're sitting here in the night air, with no lizards. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> you would have me on and, my front porch with lizards. Oh, my and, God, no. What, what, are, what do we say to those of us who know the history, but they don't understand it? They don't understand. They don't know how to transpose it into their daily living. I, I've titled this broadcast uh, "Southern Comfort: The Power of the Porch." Yes. Sitting around, many of us were for our whole lives, our our whole way worldview was formed sitting on somebody's front porch and then listening in. Listening uh, in to all the grown folks' business. Absolutely. And the business told us about the world in which they were a part of. And they told fascinating stories about the human condition and how black folk made it through. And so you have to have intergenerational intimacy and connection because it is the older generation that tells the stories. They're the carriers of the culture. And each mm-hmm, generation mm-hmm. picks up and carries the culture. And so I'm saying that you cannot survive, you cannot have hope where there's no intergenerational connection. That's called, mm-hmm. according to the United Nations, uh, crime and punishment, uh, uh, the crime and punishment of genocide. They call the disruption of generations by separating young people from older people they call that BJ. They call that genocide, culture genocide, and so that we participate in that by thinking that we are by upholding a white notion of a generational divide. You see, our parents suffer the same onslaughts that we do. Our parents and our grandparents, 
are marked by the same stigma of blackness in a white supremacist society as we do. So when we're, we can't separate what we fight from from what we're fight for their fight. Our fights are inextricably bound together by our common history, uh, embroiled, embroiled in a common struggle. However, white young folk, because their parents are the ones in power, their parents are the ones who are engaging in systemic oppression and creating a death-driven system. In order to liberate the country and liberate themselves, they must unseat their parents. They must be over and against their parents. And we have bought into the notion that we are engaging, that black folks suffer from a generational divide. It is, it is normal. We want young people to disagree with us. That's called progress. If young people didn't disagree with us, we're being trapped in a static history with no change and no progress. It is a marvelous situation when young people with facts and reason dissent with older people because sometimes your vision can become clogged by age, and we need young folks to shake us up. But you don't do that off the top of your head because I come armed with facts that I've accumulated from old age. And so I'm going to contest you if your facts are raggedy. But I depend on you to challenge my facts, and that's called progress. That's called change. Mm -hmm. That's called movement. And so we are not in a generational divide, and I hate when black folk think that we're white folk. What do you mean by that? By thinking that we that older black folks are enemies of younger folk. Our parents are not the rulers. They're not the patriarchs. We're not trying to unseat our parents. Our parents are also oppressed in the same ways that we are. We are part of each other. We're not out there. We're not. Our parents are not the thirty percent who who control ninety five percent of the resources. White young people must confront their parents because their parents are the is is the, is the elite. Their parents comprise the thirty percent. Mhm, mhm. And so, how then? Go how then? How then? Because m- most of the people who listen to this program are mature activists. They are um, uh, one foot out and one foot into our generation. Our generation of civil rights and black power movements and liberation theories. How do we, what is the organizing key to bridging, building bridges between the generations, between the regionalisms? I mean, I know that most of the people that I know outside who did not grow up in the South, they recognize that I've got something, a little bit of something that they don't have. Uh, and I try to transpose that in in terms of 
uh, my young people friends. And let me give you a good example. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I think we need to do more of is to meeting young people where, where they are. And I've been a proponent of street academies for a very long time, helping young people recognize the things that they can do, the things in their neighborhoods to not better the neighborhood, but strengthen the neighborhood. Um, and and I, 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 before I retired, I did a lot of talking to uh, housing groups and housing advocacy leadership. And, and one of the things that I was saying is that especially public housing in our inner cities uh, and even in small cities need to be the center of the organizing, of the educating, of helping people form their, libera- their liberation uh, theories and understanding the diversity of, of what it means to empower and 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 really protect our community. How do we do that, Ruby? First of all, we do that by looking at the ways in which we have internalized the ambivalence of empire in our values and how we move in the world because there's something almost psychotic about knowing that we're in the most vicious season of white supremacy, yet you send your delicate children into the lion's den to fight for themselves with all white teachers, and then you wonder why don't they love us, because they don't know us. So there must be ways in which I'm not saying that black children should never be in a white class, but I'm saying that understanding what is being left behind, we must create the continuity. We must have organizations and community structures that offset this. You can't expect young folks to, we don't know them and they don't know us. And so we are a house divided. Another thing that I think is important is to understand that first and foremost, African Americans and black people from the diaspora, once situated in this country, once located in America, we are a national community. And one of the ways in which our national identity gets shattered was by a very devious organizing method that said that everything is local. And that's absurd because... Black folk are not just getting killed by police in Minnesota. It's a national crime that happens in every state in the union, practically. And it's happening to black folk by virtue of our our race and by virtue of white race, white people. So we've got to stop uh, allowing people to divide us. And, 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 and so we've got to create a a, a, a discourse that reframes black people as a national community. And and I think also we've got to understand that each of us, no matter how serious, no matter how 
sincere we are, carry within us the ambivalence of empire. And it's not just out there with other people. It's also in there with us. And so how is it? I mean, I listen. I'll give you an example. John Lewis's funeral. That was an example of the ambivalence of empire. On the one hand, he's being celebrated and lauded as a prophet of nonviolence, and and that which made him who he is was predicated on the idea of nonviolence. And in the last, his last steps home, his last journey home, his coffin was carried by by military people, men in military. They were the last people. Mm. So how is it that that's, that's ironic, ain't his, it? <laughs> that's a real. That's the craziness. His family was probably thought that they were giving him honor, but in fact, the best honor would have been to have farmers carry that coffin. But to have symbols of of even as the military was tearing his coffin, you had them in Portland terrorizing people. Even as the military was carrying his coffin, you had a man who's the commander of the chief who's a racist. And so, but yet, very few people understood the irony of that scene. Yeah, I I think you're right uh, that very few people saw that. I was very disappointed that it was a carriage of the the carriage itself uh, uh, in Selma instead of being um uh, it, it, the the man with the high hat and all that stuff uh that that caught my eye but you know it 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 really does take some some reeducation uh ruby of people to understand that symbolism last third wednesday or Wednesday before last, whatever day it was on this program, we were talking about the symbolism of freedom. What are the symbols? And the symbols certainly aren't um, the military or the, or the police. There was a guy here a couple of weeks ago, and he was from D.A.R.E. saying D.A.R.E. helps black children. Well, D.A.R.E. is, a, is representative of, of the uh, police brotherhood. So, uh, you know, whatever they're doing, they're simply teaching our children to respect oppressive forces. So how do we begin? I mean, you know, Ruby, one we of the things I thought about this week. critiquing that. We have to call that out. We have to ask the question, what is the contradiction? On the one hand, you're celebrating a man who you say was a part of the common people who encouraged people to get in good trouble. But the greatest moment of the, for, for the media and for the world was not Jim Lawson, who in my eyes really made, the, made the, the best remarks and the most cogent remarks, but it was the fact that three presidents, the three representatives of the empire showed up, and that gave his funeral legitimacy. Not that common, ordinary people of whom we said he was a part of. They were not there. To, that was not what gave him the legitimacy. This is crazy mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. This is absolute yeah. craziness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we all suffer from it. It's well, confusion. Yes. 
it is it it, it very much uh, confuses the confusion. Um, and you know, I, I, you know what I thought about Thursday morning when I woke up. I was thinking about you, and I was thinking about my friend Carmen in Africa, and wish she would come home and do her work here. And uh, I was thinking, why wouldn't a panel with you uh, and some others, I, I wasn't thinking about who the others would be, but you are the person that needs to be talking to the people who are advising Joe Biden and the DNC because that is our only answer. That's the price we have to pay right now. But it doesn't have to be that they're standing in the same place they were standing in week before last. Well, let me you, just tell you what I feel about that. Okay. You see, people think black people are simple-minded. They think that one black man can tell a whole race of people how to vote, and we go and do it like stupid puppets. And so Jim Clyburn is hustling oh. that image. Because the Uh average black person don't even know who he is. That's not why black people voted for Jim Clyburn. We voted for him because we felt like we were in an urgent state. And to be honest, after what happened with Obama, Obama, we did not feel that in this climate a black person could win. And we felt like we needed to have a win. So we chose the white man whom we thought would do the least amount of harm. And the white man who had worked with Obama, and we took that to mean that at least he was civilized. That's why black folks voted for him, not because Jim Clyburn delivered the black vote. How insulting is that to a people? How insulting is that to our intelligence? We got mad with Joe Biden for saying that black folks were, were a monolith, but yet we allowed Jim Clyburn, people to say that Jim Clyburn uh, was the reason why black folks voted for Joe Biden. And we're not insulted by that. How confused are we? And then mm-hmm. he's going to say mm-hmm. that we need a Supreme Black woman. Should, he, uh, Biden should nominate a black woman for the Supreme Court. And it doesn't. And he doesn't necessarily have to have a, a black woman for president. Well, why is it? that black women are the only people who are made to choose between running for vice president and having a seat on the Supreme Court. White women don't have to make that choice. Nobody's saying that a white woman shouldn't be president because white women are on the Supreme Court. No one is saying that black men should, a black man shouldn't be nominated because, yes, because there's a black... Only black women are made to make that choice. And nobody has said a word, and we are confused. But where, Ruby, here is what Thursday morning took me to. How do we get a voice like yours in a place where people no longer can stand on nobody's thinking about that? I, I just don't know because uh, the problem is voices like mine are too threatening to the status quo. And so that we have to build institutions and networks like you're doing with Common Ground and value those networks to show up as much for Common Ground as we do for MSNBC. 
which is corporate media. I don't care what they say. And so it has to do with our values and our choices. Nobody mm -hmm, is mm going to hand you the microphone to turn around and unseat them and take away their power. We're going to have to create our own microphones. Well, we've certainly been trying to do that for years. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and and one of the things, you know, I defy anybody at Sirius Radio or MSNBC to compete with the kind of discussion because we don't do drive-by comments. (laughs) I will never do that. And you don't do Um, breaking news to whip people up in a frenzy every five minutes, and you don't do repetition, and you do thoughtful, clear thinking, and it really annoys me that black folk will give all of their energy to MSNBC and in a, a medium like yours that that really is calling us to think and to really value ourselves and to come up with creative ideas based on the fact that a pedagogy of somebodyness, we won't do it. We won't support each other. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know. And so we have to learn to support each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts um about how i mean i have tried um i set up a network invited the right people uh to come in and and host conversations and discussions uh at a at a at a level that people understand and can pull through and 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 it just doesn't seem to be a, a possibility. I mean, I, I I know Ruby that if I started charging people thirty dollars a month to listen to this show, I might have one subscriber. I mean, it it is like that. And how do you begin to stop that? I mean, it's like black people are looking for the gold that glistens or confetti yeah. or what. The celebrity culture, we live in a a celebrity culture, and we live in a Mm -hmm. consumer culture. And And so that's another thing that we've got to really deal with. It's so destructive. I mean, like, everybody this week for four or five days, everybody had their, it, it seemed to me on Twitter and Facebook, talking about Kanye West, what has he ever done that there's anything. Plus the guy has a mental illness. And who and the, how dare you think so little of the futures of young black children that you would put their fates in the hands of some guy who has a mental illness? How dare you think so little of yourself and, and each other that we would risk our future in these dangerous times to some puppet of, of white supremacists like Donald Trump? How dare us do that? How dare we? I- Absolutely. How dare How you know dare that's a we? good that's a good hashtag. Everybody go out if you're on Twitter and hashtag how dare you Kanye West question mark question mark question mark our How children. dare you in a society where the predictions already say that black people in the year twenty fifty three will have zero medium income wealth. We've got a fight on our hands. Young people don't have a future in this country. How dare, how dare you 
consume somebody because they are a crazy celebrity. How dare you put your faith in the hands of a man who said Donald Trump was like a father to him? How dare you think so little of yourself and your children and your grandchildren? How dare you let your church fail your community? How dare you? How dare you? Um, how how dare you not hold people who you used your political currency to put in office and they act against your interests? How dare you allow it? How dare you uh, vote for a man who's allowed himself to be a stocking horse for Donald Trump? He doesn't intend to win. Nobody expects people to vote for him in a large number, but he's a he is expected to siphon off votes from black people. How dare we be that silly? I start well, to say stupid. Let me ask you about the never Biden black people. I, I wish they would be so as ferocious about that as they are about Republicans who they never criticize, Republicans who declared a war on black folk all the way back to Richard Nixon. How dare they allow Ronald Reagan, that 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 racist, one of the most racist presidents of the 20th century. I don't hear them saying, never let Ronald Reagan be held up as a hero. I'm so tired of black folk who eviscerate Democrats while Republicans remain unscathed. Why don't they talk about the ways in which Republicans have declared war on black people all the way back to Richard Nixon? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can critique the Democratic Party, but it has to be in balance. If you're going to do that, then, then vent your rage at Mitch McConnell. Vent your rage at Grassley. Also vent your rage at the Republican Party, who have slandered, who have smeared, who have stepped on, who have taken away voters' rights, who've done voter suppression, who've done everything to make black people not in this country rather than a citizen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that was very disturbing to me uh, is that when we had six or eight or however many um uh, Democratic uh, uh, candidates who were running in the primary, and there were uh, some who represented issues like uh, Medicare for All, um, uh, social and economic equity, uh, housing advocates, affordable housing advocates, Uh, Not all of them had all of the answers, and they were very forceful, but they got left behind. What's your thoughts about that, Ruby? Well, this is what I think. Life is very complicated. You can't suddenly say you're a friend of mine, you've been in Congress for 30 years, and you never reached out to black people. I'm going to ask who are your people. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying, I was not for Joe Biden, I have to be honest. Mm-hmm. That's, that was not my candidate, okay? 
in the prime in the primary, I was not for Joe Biden. But once black folk spoke in a large number and said that we feel safe with this candidate, I didn't think that my individual desires should override the will of the people. And so there it is. And no matter what you say, politicians are not, I I mean, politicians are not going to save us. They're not reformers. They're not revolutionaries. They're deal makers. You have to take them who they are and get out of them what you can. But don't be naive enough to think that someone who's sitting in the seat of power, enjoying all those perks and all those benefits, no matter what color they are, they are not connected to your daily issues. Hmm. And and weak people have weak leaders. Strong people have strong leaders. That's what Snicks used to say. And so the degree to which we are strong, the degree to which we have developed grassroots networks that demand that our issues get put on the agenda is the degree to which they'll be put there. But you cannot mm-hmm. expect weak people who have no who don't know how to use our power to get anything from Congress. And you cannot expect politicians to save us. People save, mm-hmm. The people save themselves. History tells us that. I don't expect mm-hmm. politicians to, to be revolutionaries. And any politician who tells you that they're revolutionary or progressive is a lie. You can't, I mean, come on, logically, how can you be a revolutionary sitting in the seat of the empire every day, enjoying all the benefits of the emperor, so isolated from the daily lives of ordinary people? How can you be, how can you, how can you be a revolutionary? How can you be a progressive? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. are part you know, of and, the and, empire. You're part and, of the and, status and, quo. Here, it's like I don't say thing. to myself that I'm like an ordinary black person who struggles every day for money, who have to figure out how to pay their rent. I would be lying if I said that, because it's not true. Well, here, here is the thing. We see all of the clues. On the campaign trail, people are dropping clues like Little Red Riding Hood going through the woods. Just dropping clues, and we don't pick up on those. One of the things that um, my good friend Playthel Benjamin always says uh. is that politics is the art of compromise. It's the art but of the when, deal. Yes, and if we begin to think that the transformers are going to be politicians there. And that is what happened with us with Barack Obama. Our good brother, Barack Obama, was a deal maker. I saw this happening. Go ahead. I saw this happening with black people in the 60s. When the action by it rushed, and that's why Stokely and Cleve and that whole group from Howard who had been students of Bayard, political students of Bayard, got really angry with him because he shifted the locus of action and power 
outside, away from the people into electoral politics. And that changed, and that made black people, therefore, secondary to the power of politicians. It shifted the locus of power out of the hands of grassroots people and put it in the hands of politicians. That was what was, that was one of the mm-hmm. SNCC's major critiques in mm-hmm. the 60s mm-hmm. and early 70s with what Byron Rustin had done. And it was a major lesson. And it's something that I have been advising people, and I'm going to say it again, is that when you turn over your political currency into the political system rather than into the grassroots political infrastructure, you risk doing just what Ruby said. It was a lesson of the 60s that we still haven't learned. You know, one of the reasons, Ruby, that we have so many sleeping towns and cities and local uh, politics, sleeping politics, is because we think it's about the people in the seat rather than the people who put them in the seat. Yes, and and we, we voted, we fought very hard for the right to vote. But but the right to vote was one part of a larger freedom package. And so the reason why we fought, fought so hard to vote was that in a democracy, that's one way of showing up and being heard and influencing public policy and getting certain resources that a community needs in order to stay alive while it wages a struggle for liberation. That's why we fought for the right to vote. It was not because we thought that politics answered all of the questions of black people. But we even know now, and that's why Biden's election is very important. I don't expect him to be God. I don't expect him to be Moses, deliverer of black people. What I expect him to do is to give black people a little bit of space without the pressures of being killed, so that we can reorganize a grassroots movement to liberate ourselves and get some of the resources like food and housing and other things that we need to have in order to organize. Yeah. You know, the the other night somebody called me and said, are you watching the news? And I said, nope, I'm listening to music. (laughs) And they said, did you hear that? Did you you need to turn the news on because Donald Trump just said he's done more for black people than anybody in the history of this country except for Abraham Lincoln. I said, do you think for a second I care about what Donald Trump just said? Right. Do you think you're going to waste your time? I mean, they were shocked. I was not shocked in the least. Were you? Were you shocked? Did that was well, that? Well, I wasn't shocked because was... I came from a southern community where, if our parents had gotten upset every time a white person said "nigger," they'd be constantly in a state of chaos and anger and confusion. And they were geniuses because they didn't allow white people to control their inner lives. They were very disciplined people. They knew that they had to be disciplined in order to stay alive. So they didn't make white people their significant others, who every time they uttered a word against us, they would jump up and respond. 
No, they just looked yeah. at them, shook their heads, and, and reduced them to poor, pitiful things. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the in in the in the southern town that I grew up in, which was segregated, Ruby, uh, when there was a problem and the teachers felt it was a problem in a school, for instance, the textbooks weren't appropriate because they were too old. They didn't go and strike or or fuss with the the Palm Beach County School Board where they paid their taxes and from which they got their salary, they went to the community and said, for this school, we need $1,000 to buy textbooks for the 4th, 5th, and 6th grade. And the community came up with the money. And then we dealt dealt with the then they dealt with the principals about strategies of how to move the superintendent on those issues. So right. yeah. You know, if there were if there had been in 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 when when the black community was dealing with the great plague. Um <clears throat> I am sure it was inside that they dealt with it. You and will not his, get anywhere any distance by being hurt and devastated every time a white person says something racist. You will not make it. You have got to be disciplined. You've got to throw it back at them and let them carry that weight because that's their weight. That says something about them and says very little about you. But But every time you pick it up and and squeeze it and get hurt and cry and wring your hands, you've taken up their sickness. You've taken up their spiritual malformation, and you've made their perversion your cause, your cause. And so I really worry about whether or not we're going to get through these times, whether or not we're going to get through a global militarized world, a surveillance state where black lives matter, at least of all lives, in a medical industrial complex where black bodies are disrespected, dehumanized, and degraded, and maltreated, in a school system where black children go to militarized public schools where 85% of the teachers are white. I don't know how is it that we're going to get through all of this by breaking up and being hurt because some white person calls you the N-word. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I think every community ought to be thinking about building a spirit house project on the model that you created, uh, Ruby, because that will be the only sanctuary in all of this because the dismantling has been so deep that... Uh, we have to learn to be self-sufficient. We have to learn to be self-determining. And we have to learn to use the resources that we do have. We and don't in think this, we have any because we think all black people are poor. The only black people we think have money are black people like Beyonce, entertainers and sports people. We don't know that there's a very strong black middle class. 
We don't know mm-hmm. that. So we go in the world as if we are beggars, constantly mm-hmm. thinking that we have nothing. We built nothing, and white people have built everything. If that's how yeah. you see yourself, no wonder you feel small when somebody uses a word that that's negative. Sticks and stones mm-hmm. they break my bones. Mhm. And and we don't we we don't reach back to our history and know that it was working poor people who kept who built and mixed and kept putting up the the barriers that protected us in our black communities. It was the Amen. Uh, amen. The, the, amen. But you the see, uh, of course you don't know and, that, because mm-hmm, you know why? Mm-hmm. Because when when white people get a hold of our history, they raise up icons like John Lewis, and they say that he did it all by himself, or somebody else did it all by themselves. There were 600 people on that bridge that day. It's called Bloody Sunday because the blood flowed from the bodies of ordinary black people including nine-year-old Cheyenne Webb and Rachel West. That's why it's called mm-hmm. Bloody Sunday. Not because one person was beating, but the blood of the black people flowed from the bridge to Brown Chapel Church, and that's why it's called Bloody Sunday. And if you don't mm-hmm. remember that, then you won't appreciate that your grandmama and your aunt and your cousin went out on that bridge and gave everything. You'll think that some exceptional Negro did it. Mhm. Mhm. And what and what brought us our strength? Uh, you know, I remember when I was um, maybe around twelve or eleven years old, marching down Sapadilla Avenue in West Palm Beach in support of what the civil rights movement was doing in Mississippi and Alabama, and I was so proud. That is where I found my light. I found the light and said, you know, this whole thing when Obama was running around talking about, yes, I can. That was my yes, I can moment. And there were kids in my group who they were kind of ashamed. They didn't know what was going on. But my mother was a historian. I knew what was going on. I read newspapers. And that was my light 10 years old, 11 years old, I'm marching with Martin Luther King, even if it is in West Palm Beach, Florida, down the middle of the black community. You see? That's so what, what it's we're about. saying is that one, you keep asking about the tools. One of the tools that we must revitalize is to know ourselves and to love ourselves. You must know your history. It's not about back in the day. Stop saying that for God's sake. And understand that the history has a have you to understand today that there's a connection between the past and the present, and stop mm-hmm, saying mm-hmm. that while white people take all of our artifacts, all of our cultural artifacts from 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 the past and make millions of dollars off of them, while we dismiss them as nothing. Mhm. Ruby, we're at the top of the hour, and we're going to take a break. I know you probably need a a, um, a, a moment to kind of uh, organize. But on the other side, in the second page, I want to talk to you about the dismantling because you brought up something very important, and that is how we built our middle class. 
The United States Postal Service is under attack. There was a Friday night massacre where the leadership of the post office was removed and uh, a political hat put in place to be the uh, postmaster and the postmaster, the national postmaster, is taking over the United States Post Office to use it to the political interests of Donald Trump, and I want to talk about that with you. I you're listening to our to talk about. You're listening to our common ground. Our guest tonight is Ruby Neal Sales the founder and director of the Spirit House Project. Uh, She is a premier, experienced, seasoned, racial, economic, and social justice activist. If you'd like to uh, join us in this conversation in the second hour, I invite you to call us at 347-838-9852. You stay with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Ruby Sales. You believe in freedom, cannot rest until it comes. We believe in freedom, cannot rest. Hear me talking to you, we believe in freedom. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Every 10 years, the census comes along, and it seems like everyone I know always asks the same two questions. What is the census, and why does it even matter? Let me give it to you straight. The census counts every single person living in America. An accurate count of our community tells us where there are more people, and where there are more people, there are more needs. Our participation could impact how public funding flows to our schools, health clinics, senior care, job training, and housing. It even determines our congressional representation. I don't know about you, but it sure sounds like the census matters to me. This year, take a little time for the 2020 census. You can complete it online, by phone, or by mail, and make sure you count everybody you live with. Your mama, daddy, sweetheart, babies, roommates, everyone. This chance only comes every 10 years, so let's step up and be counted. Shape your future. Start here. Learn more at 2020census.gov. Paid for by U.S. Census Bureau. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, 
and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. invite you to be a regular here at Our Common Ground, Saturday night, 10 p.m. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And at TruthWorks Network, this is Alternative Progressive Urban Talk Radio. Our Common Ground Media and Communications, where race and talk matters. Join us on all of our social network platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Tumblr, and our web blogs. TruthWorks Network, where the truth must be spoken more than once. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health. It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in the journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human
Thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Tonight our guest is our good sister, Ruby Nail Sales, founder and director of the Spirit House Project. She is a Southern philosopher and author of From My Front Porch. And if you would like to read her daily blog, From My Front Porch, you can go be friends with her at Facebook at Ruby Sales. Also follow her on Twitter at the Real Ruby Sales. <laughs> I love that. Uh, that was Reverend Seku with "I Believe That We're Gonna Win." You know, on Wednesday night, uh, we ran a clip from a young woman by the name of Kimberly Waters, and she was asking the question. A young woman in a just touching thirty asking Ruby. How do we win? It doesn't matter. How do we win? It depends on what we mean by win. Because winning is a dynamic process. That each generation takes a little bit more of the territory for freedom. But freedom is a constant struggle. And if you think you're going to win in a generation... That's just, you're going to be constantly hurt and, and defeated. Constantly hurt and defeated. So we have to And it's be... not just in terms of how do we win, because we won so much during the 60s and 70s, and we ended up losing a lot of it because we did not protect that which we had won. So it's not just how do we win, but how do we develop the guardrails to protect the freedom territory that we do win so that we don't go back and so that we don't willingly go back in the very house that we have sought to escape from. The very house that we escaped from. We willingly we went back in it. Over. Not because of segregation, but because we thought that their house was better than any house we had ever built in our own communities. And we willingly went back and and we and we went back under the we submitted to the rulership of the very people whom people had died, had been shot, had been maimed, had been tortured to get to get these people feet off of their necks, and we voluntarily let them put their feet on our necks again because we didn't project. We didn't ask what was the purpose of the Southern Freedom Movement. The purpose of the movement was not to get a seat at their table, but it's to build a new table, a redemptive table that was full of different values and different relationships and had a possibility of change and, and sustaining that change. And so we did not ask what did it mean to be a free people. It was not to become to, to get PhDs and, and think that our degrees made us who we were. We were already somebody. We just wanted to be able to live into the fullness of our capacities. And so the question was, what was the, our full capacity? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I no. think that it's not just, so what I would say to the young lady is that the question is simultaneous. How do we win? 
And how do we protect that which we win as we win? Mm-hmm. We're going to play that clip at uh, uh, the end of this program. Uh, and I would like everybody to reflect on what uh, Dr. Sales just said, because she's a Southern philosopher, and she's talking about the Southern freedom movement, and people understood what it is they were preserving, what they were protecting. Am I right, Ruby? Yes, Martin Luther King made it very clear in one of his many speeches that we were not trying to integrate into a burning house. We were not trying to abandon black culture. We just wanted to be able to live in the world and and be able to reach our highest capacity and to be able to not have our houses torn down and our streets bombed. That's what we wanted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we allowed white people, white historians, to call this great freedom movement I keep saying it, and I can't get people's attention. Keep calling this great freedom movement the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement does not talk about the freedom as a continuous struggle that has deep roots that go all the way back to Harriet Tugman. Harriet Tugman wasn't running away to get civil rights. There was no, there was not any revolts on these slave ships to get civil rights. They were revolting to be free. They were, I mean, Harriet Tugman, Frederick Douglass, they were running away to freedom, to be free. And so civil rights is only one aspect of freedom. But there was so much more that we were trying to change in this country. We were trying to change state-sanctioned murder. Don't forget that the March, the bloody Sunday, the march across the Elma Pettus Bridge happened because of the state-sanctioned murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson by a state trooper. Mm-hmm. Which is why I've been advocating that the bridge ought to be called the Jimmy Lee Jackson Bridge. Uh, but nobody's yes, listening that's why, to me. That's why we were marching. We were also mm-hmm. marching because black people were forced to 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 endure a new kind of enslavement on on those sites of terror in the South owned by people like Senator Eastland called plantations where they were made to sharecropping. And so the the Southern Freedom Movement, not only the, the Southern Freedom Movement, let me say, relieved that system off of black people's back. And for the first time in history, we could have a living wage in the South. And be op- mm-hmm. and operate on the federal labor laws. That was a radical mm-hmm. moment. That was beyond civil rights. It was the question that had always been at the heart of a, of the black captivity in this country: whether or not our labor would be free, or whether or not it would belong to white people. To whom would our labor belong? That was at the heart of the Southern Freedom Movement: the freedom to claim one's own labor and to benefit from one's work. You know, After and the most Southern people... Freedom movement, the plantation system in the South collapsed. No longer were black maids forced to work for $15 a week. And that was in our lifetime. That was in our Almost. lifetime. 
Yes. And in addition to that, we were we were we could go to the bathroom and and we could go have the dignity of going into a, a shop and trying on clothes and not being treated as if we had some rancid disease. It was the right to be free to move around in society without being contained, constrained, and militarized. And we reduce it to civil rights. And when we do that, we shift the lotus of power away from the locus of power, away from the people, and we put it in the hands of politicians. Because civil mm-hmm. rights is about public policy. It, it's a part of freedom, but it's not the whole thing. Freedom doesn't mm-hmm. talk about the terror that 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 was responsible for the death of Emmett Till, that we were contesting a system of vigilante murder and state-sanctioned murder through lynching and all forms of torture in the South. That was not about, that. while that was about equal protection on the law, it was also about the efficacy and the, and the significance of the black body and the, and the right mm-hmm. to move around in society without being crucified. Well, you know, one of the things that we need to reflect upon, Ruby, and I'd like for you to talk about this. Oh, let me just say one other thing as a woman that I think is very important. The Southern Freedom Movement finally ended a system where white men felt that they could have access to black women's bodies in the South anytime they wanted to have it without any punishment or without any uh, accountability. So the Southern Freedom Movement freed black people, black women, from the burden of white men's rape. Nobody talks about that. Yeah. And they changed our bodies by white men. Yeah, the, in, the absence of, of protection even in self-defense. You and you and I have talked about the the story of, and for those of you who would like to look it up, a Florida woman by the name of Ruby McCollum, who at one point uh, lived in a rooming house not far from my house, who I happened to have met and talked to when she killed her rapist, uh, who was also her employer, and was sent to a mental hospital for 15 years for defending herself. Um, and that was an important a... moment for people who had been, whom white people had said that we were their property, that we didn't have any right to control our bodies or even control our relationship to decide to whom we would, we would allow to enter into our, public, into our private body exactly. space. And we don't talk about that, you see. And not to talk about that is to eradicate the victory of that moment. The victory of that moment because it was the Southern Freedom Movement which allowed a Time magazine reporter to reveal it in a cover story in Time in 1965. Yes. That gave Ruby McCollum the the chance uh, to be taken out of the mental institution prison 
sentence that she had received for defending herself. That was in 1965. 1965, I was 15 years old. And that is the context in which we have to, Ruby, and I, I want to, before we talk about the Postal Service and the dismantling that's going on now of the the built the, the the foundation of the black middle class. Um, Amen. You're one of the few people who understand that. You're the first person whom I've heard say that out loud. Well, uh, but I, I do want to hear your comments about, you know, black people got to wish upon a star, and it, it can't be the star from some Disney movie. It's got to be the North Star. The North Star, what takes us to freedom? Because we cannot win if we are not a if we are not behaving like a free people. And we must realize we must go back, and we must stop saying that policing happened during the slave patrols. That is so short-sighted. No, the policing of the black bodies happened the moment that Europeans put chains on black folk, captured us, and put us above those slave ships. Our captains and police became the sailors and the captains of those ships, and we were no longer free to move around. We, were, we no longer were free. And so that and, and policing is not about uh, a, a, a group of men who are treating black people fairly. It is a, the whole system of containment of black people in this country is predicated on policing not only the black body, but also the black mind. There was a time in this country where you, a black person couldn't even think about being free if you were an enslaved person. That was a death sentence. So white people have not only policed our bodies, our minds, but they've also policed our relationships. And so that we've got to have a broader understanding of policing as a system of containment. And we've got to understand that freedom for black people has always been the contested territory because white people have always seen black freedom as a threat to white freedom and a threat to white survival and the the economic well-being of white people. Because to be free... That meant that black people would control our labor, and we would benefit from our labor. And so that the black body has always, always been policed in this country. We've never, and we've also always been under a system of surveillance. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the segue is that we have to begin to understand that while we have have changed, they have not. While we have been looking for change, they have been trying to hold hold on to what what is, and that is part of why we have to have infrastructures. When we talk about Ruby, this whole and black people are loving to talk about. Uh, economic inequities. But what we don't understand is what brought us, as as Sister 
Dr. Julia Hare would say, safely across. And that is an economic system that we had respect for that worked for us. So let's talk about the U.S. Postal Service and its dismantlement. Let's talk about uh, the, you know, one of the one of the major reasons why the black middle class and uh, economic middle class is falling apart is because we are reducing the number of federal and state employees. And it's under you the ought Republican to just go guide. on and say that you ought to just go on and preach that sermon right now because people have missed that they have totally missed that this man has cleaned out the federal government of top level black people who comprise the middle class. You ought to just go on and preach that well, well you know one of the things I say on this on this program many times is the black middle class are people who are who are employed in government. And the reason that the Republican Party and the GOP and the people who want to hold on to the power of oppressing black people in an apartheid situation ever since Richard Nixon calling for smaller government it has nothing to do with your tax dollars. It has right. everything to do with dismissing and minimizing and marginalizing the number of black people who have created a middle working class for themselves for, for their communities because they work for the government. And without a middle black middle class, black people are poverty stricken devoid of any um resources in terms of Owning houses, any wealth is what I'm trying to say. So there's yeah. a correlation. Yeah, are maintaining. Mhm, mhm. And 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 we're talking about communities that support the economic infrastructure, because if you have a large number of black people who are banking at a specific bank in your community. That bank is very afraid to be called out when it's not lending to other middle class. It's not just the teachers and the government workers. It's the construction workers, et cetera, et cetera. So as we talk about the economic inequities in this country, understand that that is part of how the attack is coming at us. Ruby, I want to talk about. Go ahead. I'm sorry. The I remember. I very clearly remember as a child thinking that the the King of Peace was the first black man in my community, Mr. Mack, who was a letter carrier. Yep. He was the first black man in my community to be hired by the post office. And he retired after 50-some years in the post office. But here we are at a time where black people are trying to save their lives by through social distancing, through whatever safety measures they have to take, and also at the same time being called on to bring out the black vote to get rid of this menace 
in our universe, in our government, and in the White House, and they are using the weapon of the, uh, they have weaponized the United States Postal Service. And they have weaponized it in two ways. And we could talk about the post office, but the other is I am really begging people. It takes five minutes. Go online and complete your census forms and submit your census for your mama, your anybody who lives in your house, even if they're temporary, because I it is have so a important. Deep worry. I stay awake at night worrying about the fact that we are missing the point of the whole era that we're in. Since 1977, with the evisceration, with the beginning evisceration of manufacturing in this country and taking jobs away to other places, it decimated the labor force in this country, and that had a deep impact on African Americans. People talk about the Rust Belt for white people, but they don't talk about what happened to black people in these Midwestern and Northeastern cities where the, where, where the conservatives eviscerated the economic infrastructures of those cities and left them just depleted. And, and and so that we're living in a capitalist technocracy where human labor is becoming less and less significant and it's becoming more and more obsolete. And our labor is being replaced by by technology, by 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 machinery. And so the question because of this, black labor is no longer needed or valued. And we are just, and so the system sees us not only as being a problem, but also being disposable. And in a world where 30% of white men own 95% of the wealth and the rest of the world, including us, have to divide the paltry 5% that's left over, it means that even whiteness does not, the average mass of white people, the ordinary white people, his whiteness or her whiteness, does not carry the same currency. How can it, when they are forced to share 5% of what's up over with 70% of the world? And so that we are missing the point that in a capitalist technocracy where human labor is becoming obsolete and artificial intelligence is replacing human intelligence, all lives are becoming uh, uh, we live in a capitalist technocracy where very few lives matter, and black lives matter least of all lives because we're black. And so that we've got to look at, you can no longer talk about, we're talking about these issues as if we're in the 20th century. We no longer have northern inner cities. Even Harlem is no longer predominantly black. Just, and we have to ask, what is the correlation between gentrification and the commodity and, and the prison industrial complex cleaning black people out of cities, what is the correlation between uh, ethnic cleansing uh, and the containment of refugees 
and gentrification. And so we we've got to look at the fact that the local that the that the struggle for black people no longer lies in cities. They lie in rural communities where we are facing food mm-hmm. deserts, hospital deserts, inadequate health care, uh public inadequate access to transportation. And and so that these sites have become sites of desolation. And and people who live in rural sites in this country are considered disposable waste. And so we've got to stop looking at the world as if we're still in an industrial society. We've got to ask, what does it mean to live in in a technocracy where the only people who matter are technocrats? And what does it mean to live in a surveillance state where, where the state where Facebook can even tell you who would make you a good friend on Facebook? Do you ever stop to ask how do they know that? They know that because they've analyzed our personalities. They've done the logarithm. They know exactly what will uh, appeal to us and what will get us going and what will frighten us. And so that we're not asking the right questions. We assume that we will that things will always be as they always was. And it's just not the case. The American dream though is a dream. These technocrats dream of a world of robots who do human labor without the the pressure, without the annoyance of resistance. There are while they're talking about Mexicans at the borders and all of that. For these elites, there are no borders. There are no uh, labor laws that govern them as as they've collapsed borders and located themselves in other countries. They're not constrained constrained by the concept of the nation state in the way that we once knew it. And I just am very worried that we are not, even our intellectuals are so much responding to the discourse of white intellectuals that they're not charting out a clear vision for for our people. They're not asking. Yes, the pandemic has made the employment worse, but to be perfectly honest, it was already trending in that direction ever since Detroit went, ever since Ohio went away from being a center of manufacturing, ever since the northern industrial state was uh, dismantled. And these are really... These are things that we must think about. What does it mean when art, when, when, when social media, when, when machinery do your research for you and interpret to you the meaning of the world? So I'm just very afraid that, that, that we're not, we're still talking, there's something going on here that we're not connecting with the fact that there's a reason why that there's a great disparity in economic, in the wealth of black people. There, there's a reason why we're not getting access in the medical industrial complex to the, the, the treatment and the preventative care that we need for the COVID. That, that, there's a correlation between that and the, and the rise of state-sanctioned murders of black people in this country. It's all a part of the reality that in a capitalist technocracy, black bodies are disposable, according to the technocrats. We're no longer needed. We're nuisances. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it is it is very clear that we don't have enough people asking the right questions. And if you ask the wrong questions, you won't get answers that are not useful. Right. Um, but we all know we're all smart people. We all know if we sit down and think about it that we live that that human labor is being replaced by technocracy. We all know mm-hmm. that thirty percent of white men own ninety five percent of the world's labor. So we don't ask ourselves what is the correlation between that and the rise of white supremacist groups in this country. Well, there are many who deny there is a rise uh, because they fall for the facade that is put in front of of those organizations. And that is why we end up with uh, Bill Barr being the most um, 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 dangerous man on the planet as far as I'm concerned. Um, because he's the architect of the dismantling of and democracy. So, yes, and if white people, if white leaders don't figure out how to build, rebuild a white middle class as they did during the progressive era when there was a class warfare between working class whites and the 100 families who ruled America, if they don't figure that out, they are going to be in for a constant struggle and conflict. And so we need to be careful and thoughtful about calling for free education in a white supremacist society where we will not have access, that they will build back the white middle class in order to start a revolution in this country off of the backs of free education that we think will benefit us. How naive can we believe that that would benefit us in a society that's ne- that's always gained, developed this class prerogatives off of our backs, and yet we say that without asking the question: How do we guarantee in a society that has never treated us right that e- that uh, that free education does not become an excuse to rebuild the white middle class off of our tax dollars, which is what they've always done? We're not asking those questions. We're not saying well, if we get free education, then they'll turn around and say there's no need for historically black colleges. And that's why the predictions are that in the year 2053, black people will have zero medium income wealth. We're not asking those questions. And, and we're certainly not advocating the kind of activism that we could be doing uh, that is free and unfiltered uh, to uh, make calls and, 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 and have an ongoing dialogue with the people who are perpetrating, who are uh, putting up legislation proposing legislation that is irrelevant. uh, It's irrelevant. And we talk about Donald Trump, but the truth of the matter is Donald Trump was elected president 
because of voter suppression. He's not the problem. The problem was there before he got there. He's just a manifestation of that which is already deep in the society. So the question is, how might we begin to understand that democracy in a growing society of people, of black and brown people, and white people are not the majority, in a white supremacist society, democracy is a foe. It's not a friend to white supremacists. Because how do you maintain mm-hmm. the supremacy of whiteness in a society where you're outnumbered? And the only way that you do that is through repressive laws. You can no longer, It's not by accident that the country is becoming fascist. It's becoming fascist because of the growing number of people of color and the attempt of white people to maintain white supremacy. They cannot tolerate democracy. And so we must begin to look at that. And not just ignore that. And and, and the other is that we must have a spirit of claiming uh, democracy for ourselves. We can't dismiss it that it's white people's. Right. uh, It's something that white people um, have... uh, that it's for them as opposed for us, that that democracy in this country is not our business, it's their business. And I see a lot of that dismissive kind of uh, discourse going on um, that immigration, for instance, is not um, something for which Black people ought to be giving a lot of thought to. In terms Who the hell do they think of the of the refugees? They're they're also black people from Africa who are being. They're the highest disproportionate number of people, black people who are being held in these sites of terror called detention centers. And so the very people who would say that would then turn around and proclaim themselves to be pro Africa. Well, there and are the people who. About Kamala Harris I know that a lot of black folk Make the point that she's not black Every time they say that I just go crazy Because of the abandoned conference That happened in 1954 When African and Asian nations Got together And created a strategy It was called An Afro-Asian strategy Immediately after colonialism that asks the question, how can we move forward consolidating our power based on a common unity, based on the fact that we are all uh, free, we all have been victims of colonialism, we all engaged in a struggle to free ourselves. That was the vision. That was the vision. Alan Clayton Powell was at that conference. Uh, the, the, the black female reporter was at that conference. And I'm saying that that was a major conference that happened that sought to have Afro-Asian unity. And so if you look at it that way, she's not out of order. She's part of a continuity. There were 12 African nations there. The United States wouldn't allow us to send in a representative. Uh, John Foster Dulles was the Secretary of State. But... Adam Clayton Powell went anyway because Ebony and Jet Magazine sent him. That was one of the most major conferences of solidarity and unification 
that happened post World War Two, and and, and, and the, colonialism. And 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 here here's my point about um, how we claim our place in this country. That everything, every policy, every every space is about us. There is nothing that is, whether it's in the Department of the Interior or whether it's Department of Agriculture, whether it's Department of Education, whether it's Department of Urban and and uh, Housing and Urban Development, whether it's Department of Justice, we have to claim our power and our place. In America, otherwise, they will maintain a system of apartheid. Yes, and I'm also saying that we have to connect how we claim ourselves with a with a vision, with the continuity of history. And I'm saying to you that the vision, and I want everybody when we hang up to look up the Bandung Conference, B A N D U N G, the Bandung Conference, 1954. Uh, I want everybody to look that up because it shows that the vision was an Afro-Asian unity, union in, in order to counter Western hegemony and the Western power. And they decided that they would not get involved with the Cold War struggle. They would not uh, support either Russia or the United States because they saw that as the United States' vision. A business, as the Western white vision that, that decimated black unity. And so we make ignorant statements about Kamala Harris and say that she's not black without understanding that she was exactly the vision that was created in 1954, an Afro-Asian unity. We can yeah, no longer yeah. look at ourselves in very small ways. We we do have to use history as a tool. Uh, we do have to broaden our understanding of freedom. Ruby Nell says, I could never, ever exhaust my need to talk to you, my sister, because you bring it plain, you bring it straight, and you bring it deep. You are a deep diver. And I will be always, forever, uh, ear to your voice and your wisdom, your insight. Thank you so much for being with us. Now, let me tell let you me what I have Let me just say why done. I come on your program, because, because you're a deep diver also. And I love engaging in conversations with you. And I'm just really encouraging everybody who's listening to us tonight, please pass the word. Please love ourselves enough that we begin to support conversations that reaffirm who we are and give us the information that we need to win a victory for this season of our lives. Thank you, Ruby. Thank you so much. Uh, I am well honored and well complimented. Um, But what I have done is at OurCommonGround.com, there is a... Ruby Nail Sales page. She has been 
a witness from the bridge for us. And all of the programs that she has done where she has appeared on Our Common Ground, you have at your touch of your mouse for uh, the archives, every one of them going all the way back. Um, uh, We were so honored that she was our first witness from the bridge at Our Common Ground when we began that series and uh, she will always be a witness worthy of our ear. Ruby Nail Sales, thank you so much. I'm going to be on the front front porch tomorrow morning. I always check the front porch every morning on Facebook. All right, well, at Ruby thank you Sales. so much for inviting me on your front porch. I want you to know that the village, there is a village in my heart where you live. Thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to look out for to listen for ourselves and to hear our own voices. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you will come back. You will be back uh in this season of our lives. Ruby Nail Sales and if you do not know it's S A L E S. And you can do a Google search, and Ruby is all over the place. (laughs) But on our page at OurCommonGround.com, all of her commentary, all of her interviews at Our Common Ground as well as other places, her TED Talk is on our website, and we hope that you will will take some time. Uh, if this is the first time you've caught her on our common ground in this sanctuary, that you will take some time and listen in. We've talked about a, a diversity of topics over the years with her. She was our reporter on the ground at uh, Ferguson. Uh, we talked um, um, every a horrific event that we have been in over the years uh, with her. Uh, I want to remind you and uh, thank her so much that we should we should leave affirming messages to people like Ruby. It takes a special kind of girth. Um, to keep turning these issues over and over in our heads. Um, A certain kind of um, mulling that becomes sometimes painful. And I think that we should, uh, I'm encouraging you to leave, to, to become friends with her on Facebook and follow her on Twitter, The Real Ruby Sales, and leave affirming, sometimes we need some, I know that there's not a a day that I'm not calling somebody to affirm that I have a, that that I can move forward, that I, that I, to be encouraged, to be inspired, Um, and we hope you do that. The other thing that we're asking you to do is to go to 2020census.gov. 
I know Wednesday night I made a mistake. I couldn't change it because I didn't think about it until after the program. But it's 2020census.gov and fill out your census. The other thing that I'm asking you to do is to call your senator and call your House representatives where you live and let them know that you are not happy and you're demanding that something be done in in protection of the U.S. Postal Service. I mean, the U.S. Postal Service brings you nice cards and everything, but for some people it brings them their medicine, it brings them the information about what they need to do to get a job. Uh, there's a, a lot of things, and we need to think about how devastating this attack on the U.S. Postal Service will be to us. Uh, don't forget that we are now, we have a broadcast on Our Common Ground on Wednesday nights at 10 p.m., and I hope you'll join us there. This week coming up, we're going to be taking some portions of this program, replaying them as clips and taking your calls. I'm sorry that we didn't get to any calls uh, tonight, um, but I thought that it was very important for us when you have when you have that kind of wisdom. And Ruby is dynamic in the way she thinks. So I'll see you on Wednesday night. Have a good week. Stay safe and do something. It's not enough. to. We cannot find redemption unless we do something. Stop doing nothing. I'm Janice Graham, sending you peace and love and thanking Ruby Nail Sales for being with us tonight. For all of you in the chat room, thank you. And for those of you listening on other platforms, we appreciate your listenership. Proportionary measure If love and peace you treasure And you'll hear Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now.